Well, good morning. Good morning. And as, uh, as David mentioned, we will be in Acts chapter 12 today, so if you would find your way in your copy of God's Word to that passage. Uh, and as you do that, I would like to thank you for an opportunity again to be here, to thank your pastor for inviting me. And uh, David, you're always too nice for things you say. I believe it about Noah. I don't know that I believe it about me. So, But thank you for, for your kindness. And, and I, I've, I've told my wife and I've told Isaac, it is, it's always a joy to prepare and to study, to teach, but it, it's extra special when I've got a, a date circled where I get to be with, with Wake Chapel. This is, a, this is a wonderful place to be, and I, I continue to be thankful to the Lord for this church and for how they love our friends and have taken care of them and continue to do that. Um, you mentioned that I was, I think it may have been the last time I was here, we were in John's gospel and I had been teaching that. I have not been teaching in Acts, so we'll see how that goes. Um, but we are continuing right along in, in your study of Acts. I believe you finished chapter 11 last week. We're going to pick up in chapter 12 this week. And if you have well, let me, let me do another disclaimer before we get going. There's a lot of text today, okay? So there's going to be a lot of reading at the beginning, and then there's going to be a lot of this, okay? So I apologize beforehand, but uh, that, that's, that's just uh, how, how it has to be today. So if you found your place, Acts chapter 12, we will begin in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, 
It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. This is God's word. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for an opportunity to gather. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the passage before us today that your spirit has inspired, and we ask now that your spirit would be our teacher. As we read this, as we talk through this, as we examine this, Lord, we pray that your spirit would apply it to our mind, to our heart, and that, Lord, that your spirit would give us the ability and the discipline to be obedient to the things we read. And having done so, we pray that we would look more like your son after that. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you thought last week the text lacked some excitement, lacked some uh, drama, and even some humor, then today we'll certainly make up for that. Um, you, you finished chapter 11 last week, and before that you've been going through the book of Acts and Luke's account of the beginning of the church. And in, in chapter 1 of Acts, we find Christ is still on earth. He has resurrected. He's still with his disciples. He's teaching. He's encouraging. And before he ascends, we don't have him long in chapter 1. He ascends in verse 9. But in verse 8, he says this to, to those listening. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Luke in Acts is recording for us how this is working itself out, how this is playing itself out. It begins in Jerusalem, and then it spreads. You read last week of the church in Antioch and how many were added to the number there because of the preaching of the gospel and God's work through that. You, you read as we get through Acts and even to the end of it, you, you can read of the missionary journeys and the, the things and places that Paul has been and the, what, the places that he has spread the gospel and shared Christ, and that's getting to be the ends of the earth, right? Even today, right this minute, in this place, in this building, in this city, with your copy of God's Word sitting in your lap, as we read Acts chapter 12, all of that, the genesis for all of that, I don't think I'm overstated it here, is from what we read in the book of Acts. The beginning of the church is what we are learning about and what we're talking about. And thankful are we to God that it did make it to the ends of the earth and that it has made it to North Carolina. And we can have it and read it and thank the Lord for his goodness and his grace. So we see in chapter 2 after that that Christ ascends. Chapter 2 begins, the Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches at Pentecost, right? 3,000 are added, and then it is on. It is on. It takes off from there, and we read of teaching. We read of preaching. We read of deacons. We read of councils. We read of 
persecution of Stephen. We read of conversion of a man named Saul. We read of missionary journeys. And we read a lot about persecution, which is where we find ourselves today in, in our text. Last week where you ended up, a prophet shows up and proclaims that there will be a famine that is to come. And apparently it's a little worse in Jerusalem than it is in Antioch. And they take up what we would understand as a love offering to send down to Jerusalem by the hand of Bartimaeus and Saul. And that's where we find ourselves today as we begin our study through the first 19 verses of chapter 12. So look with me at verse 1. About that time, that's, that time is the end of chapter 11. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, as we read along, about that time, they're sending relief to the church in Jerusalem, and Herod's busy. Herod's getting busy. It's always helpful as we study Scripture to understand who we're talking about. There's a lot of Herods that we run across in Scripture. Which Herod is this? Okay? It's helpful for us to understand that as we go along. Well, this is Herod Agrippa I. And you say, so what? That does not mean a thing to me. Um, if you think back in the account of the Christmas story, Magi from the east come following a star, and they show up to Herod, called the Great, who is Herod Agrippa's grandfather, show up to him and say, hey, we're here to worship this new king. And Herod says, uh, well, when you find him, come tell me where he is so I can go worship him too. Well, they were not called wise men for nothing, and <laughs> it didn't happen. They went home another way, and it, did, it did, didn't work out for Herod. So in an effort to thwart God's plan, he begins killing the Hebrew babies. That's that Herod. Herod Antipas, I'm sorry, Herod Agrippa's uncle, Herod Antipas, is the one you may remember is responsible for killing John the Baptist. It's requested that John the Baptist's head be served on a platter, and Herod of this story's uncle obliges. And Luke also records that Herod Antipas was present at the trial of our Lord. So here's Herod. He's laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. Now, why, why would he do that? Well, again, to understand what's going on, we've got to understand Herod. And Herod is first and foremost a self-serving politician. Herod, we will see as this goes along that Herod is covering his bases. Herod, you may be surprised to hear this. Herod has a weird family history, okay? I know that's shocking, what we've talked about this morning. But because of that weird family history and even his own father being killed because of some political strife, Herod knows that favor with Rome is not a guarantee. It could go south at any moment. So he's catering to the Jews here in order that if things go south in Rome, he's, got a, he's still got a meal plan. I, I need to keep these folks happy at home so that if things go south at my real job, I got, I got some backup. And that's what it is. Herod doesn't necessarily care about the church. The church is still really small at this point. It's not any, uh, in any danger of overthrowing anything, but Herod wants to please the Jews. Now, as we go along, I want to I say this too. When Luke refers to the Jews in Acts, he's not talking about all Jews, right? Same thing when we were in John's Gospel. When he talks about the Jews, he's talking about a specific group of Jews who are unbelievers. They do not believe Christ is the Messiah. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, because Peter's a Jew. 
and James is a Jew, and Saul is a Jew. And so he's not talking about all of that. So when we read that, and as we go through the text today, keep that in mind. When, when they reference the Jews, they are referencing those who are unbelievers. Verse 2, he, being Herod, killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Now, there are several Herods in Scripture. There are several Jameses in Scripture. We've got to keep all these guys straight so we understand what we're talking about. Now, do not get this James confused with Jesus' half-brother. He'll show up later. That's not him. Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, kindly points us to the fact that this is James, the brother of John. These two are known as the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, as you read through them in Scripture. And that's who this is. Um, Herod killed him with the sword. Likely, that meant he suffered the same fate John the Baptist suffered. He was beheaded for his faith. Not much is known about James. This account, he's also recorded as being present in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit shows up. And outside of the Gospels, that's all we get. That's all we get about James, the brother of John. But we see what Herod has done and what he continues to do. Verse 3, and when he, again Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, politician Herod is at work, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So maybe this, was, this killing James was a test case. Well, let's see how they respond to this. Hey, they liked it. Let me go get Peter. And he arrests Peter. And Luke records here that it is during the days of unleavened bread. Well, again, that may be a, a piece that we just read over if we're not being critical in our thinking and thinking through what Luke is trying to present to us here. But we see here, and, and that that's not in there by accident, right? He's arrested during the days of unleavened bread. Well, what are the days of unleavened bread? Well, one week after Passover are considered the days of unleavened bread. And no trials are to take place. Certainly no executions are to take place. Now, did Herod care about this? No. He did not care one bit. But the Jews did. He's catering to the Jews. And so he says, that's fine. I'll keep him in prison. And when the days are over, uh, we'll, we'll bring him out. Now we read here too, Luke records that he is delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. One squad is four soldiers. So four squads of four soldiers is 16 soldiers, right? Why? Well, there's a couple different thoughts on this. Maybe Herod's buddies, the Sadducees, say, hey, back in chapter 5, we arrested Peter and some other guys, and when we came to get them, they were gone. I don't know how they were gone, but they were gone. And they were next door preaching the gospel that we put them in jail for four to start with. So just be careful. Maybe that's what it was. Likely, though, this was more of a common thing than, than it may seem to us. So Four squads of four soldiers, each soldier or each squad of soldiers took one of the three-hour shifts over the night watch. So the night watch is 12 hours. You're on for three hours at a time, less likely to fall asleep, less likely to let somebody slip away. So they think. But that is, is likely what's happened. Whatever the case, whatever the reason, Luke is clear here that Peter is not alone. 
there are a lot of eyes on Peter, right? And where do we find Peter? Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter's in prison. The church does what the church can do. The church prays. Now, we talked about the days of unleavened bread, that detail not being in there by accident. Neither is the adjective that Luke chooses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe the prayer that's being made on Peter's behalf. It says earnest prayer is how Luke chooses to record that. That earnest, that word earnest, the Greek word for that is the same word that Luke uses when he's describing Christ's prayer in the garden before his arrest. Think back to that. Do you remember? He's praying, and Luke says he's praying earnestly, and he's praying so hard that he's sweating, and his sweat is like great drops of blood. Same word. This is not, Lord, help Peter. What's for lunch? That's not what this is. This is intense prayer together for days at a time, praying to God to save Peter, to help Peter, to rescue Peter, whatever it was, it is intense. And, and Luke wants us to understand that. And remember this verse, remember that adjective. As we go along through the rest of this passage, remember verse five, we're going to refer back to it a couple of times. Moving along, verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, so Passover is almost over, must be tomorrow. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And when he had said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. The church is praying earnestly. Peter, as sure as the morning is coming, is going to die with the sunrise. And what is Peter doing? Sleeping. He's not pacing around. Now, I don't want to make too much of this. I don't want to read into the text something that's not there. But that is not what Mark would be doing in the same situation, I don't think. Okay? So that's, but that's what Peter's doing. Uh, all of this is happening, sure as the world, coming in the morning and he's snoozing soundly, apparently, as we read through what's going to happen between him and the angel. Now, this is where all the drama, well, it doesn't start here. It started when they killed James, but it, it continues, the excitement. And we're going to see some humor in this, and that's okay. That, that's good that we see that. There's going to be some parts in here that just make us go, that, that's, that's pretty funny. So what happens? Peter's snoozing between two guards, bound with two chains, sentries at the door. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. Now, I have not seen an angel. I don't think I want to see an angel before I get to heaven, because the way they are described in Scripture, bad dudes, <laughs> right? You don't, you don't want to be on the wrong side of an angel. And when it's the angel of the Lord, he's there for business, okay? And that we're, we're going to see that here. But I can't imagine that it's just like the light on your iPhone shining, right? The angel shows up and it's this little, no, there's this giant, great blazing light and Peter still asleep, still snoozing, still out. 
So what does the angel do? The light didn't work. So he struck him in the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. Peter gets up. Then he has to direct his every move. Peter's now awake, but Peter's not wide awake, right? Peter, get up quickly. He gets up, the chains fall off. Get dressed. Where are your shoes? Put your coat on, Peter. And Peter's just, you know, you just kind of imagine he was hard asleep. He was fast asleep. He did all these things. But then at the end of verse 9, Luke records that they don't know if he's, if what's happening to him is real or if it's a vision. Peter thinks he's dreaming. Peter is out of it. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. So now all four guards for that shift are accounted for. First and second guard right here at the gate, the two he was asleep between. That's all four. I don't know where the rest of them are, the other 12, but the four that are on duty right now, we're, we've accounted for all of them. Now, Luke does not record any kind of resistance by any of the guards. Was there? I don't know. Obviously, if it was, it didn't matter. The angel of the Lord is going to do what the angel of the Lord is going to do. And you can stand in the way if you want to, but it will be at your own peril. So we, we see that the, the angels got him up, got him dressed, got his clothes on, got his shoes on, and they're going. He went out and followed him. I'm sorry, verse 10. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened to them opened for them of its own accord, and they went out along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So they make their way through the prison. They get to the iron gate, and, and think back, prison movie, right? You got the big gate at the front that separates freedom from imprisonment. That's where we are. They walk up, and it's like the door at the grocery store. It just opens, right? The, the, the Greek word for this is the word where we get automatically. Now, the ESV, which is, which is what I'm reading through, Translate it, translates it that it opens for them of its own accord, but it opens automatically. They walk up, the gate opens. Out they go. They go a block, whatever, uh, however far one street is. They went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So as quickly as he showed up, he's gone. He has done all this. I don't know how long it took. He got Peter up. He got him dressed. He got his shoes on. He let him pass the guards. The gates are open, and now Peter is by himself out in the middle of the street, in the middle of the night. Verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I don't know if the angel woke him up on the way out. I don't know if the cold night air finally jostled him awake. Or if just all that movement got enough blood flowing that it, some of it finally made it to his brain and he woke up. But for whatever reason, now we, we read in verse 11 that Peter came to himself and he has realized what's happened. And he immediately realizes, no, that was not a dream. That angel was doing what I was dreaming the angel was doing. And now here I am out in the middle of the street all alone. Now, as you think through this and and. If your Bible has headings, um, beginning over verse 6, yours may say Peter's escape, something like that, right? Now, I, I love 
Noah's here and he will, he will testify to this. I love old movies. I love old movies much more than I love new movies. I'm trying to pass that love along to my children and I'm having some success. But immediately as I'm reading this, and this is, gonna, this is letting you into a part of my weird brain. The thing that came to my mind when I was reading this, there is an, a movie that was made in the 70s. It was a Clint Eastwood movie called Escape from Alcatraz. I see some people shaking their head. Some of you are, anyway. So <laughs> Escape from Alcatraz, there is the, the story. The title kind of gives it away, right? The, spoiler alert, it's, they're escaping from Alcatraz. So it's, it's this Story of three men who are based loosely on true events. I'm not sure. Uh, some type of facts are used in the basis of this. But there are these guys, and they, they, they make this grand plan to escape from Alcatraz, right? And they make these dummies to put in the bed so when the guard's checking that night, he sees the dummy, thinks they're in the bed, and doesn't sound the alarm until the next morning. So that gives them all night to get out. They find a way out of their cell. And over the years, they make plans. They make rubber rafts out of raincoats so that they can get out. And at the end of the movie, they do all these things. They put it in motion. They get out of their cell. The guards see the dummy. Everything keeps going. At the end, they blow up the raft, and they float away to San Francisco Bay. Never to be seen again, or are they? I don't know. <laughs> Never know. Never know. We don't know. So I say all that, and this is probably the worst illustration ever, because that is not what happened here. That whole story and that whole thing where this mastermind comes up with this way to get out of jail, that's the opposite of what Peter did. He is more like your five or six-year-old that you had to get ready to bring to church this morning. Think of it. Right? Think of this. Get up. Now get up. It's time to get up. Eat breakfast. Get dressed. Where are your shoes? Where's your other shoe? Right? You get them ready. You get them breakfast. You make sure their face is washed. You put them in the car, strap them in, drive them to church, get them out of the car, walk them to their class. Now they are at church, right? But would they be at church if you had not taken an active role in getting them here? No. If the Lord had not taken an active role in getting Peter out of jail, Peter would still be in jail. And we would be reading a totally different account of what has happened. So make no mistake, Peter is no mastermind orchestrating an escape from this Roman prison. He's more like your four-year-old. And I don't say that to make fun of Peter. Peter gets a bad rap. I love Peter. He, he says things and does things. And, and like I say, we see some humor in this. Peter loves his Lord. And I say these things not to make fun of Peter, but to just point to the fact that it's not Peter, it's Christ who's doing all of this, who's working out all of this. Keep all that in mind as we go along. So the scene shifts. Peter comes to himself. He's awake. He's in the middle of the street at night, alone, out of prison, and he wakes up. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So he wakes up, he realizes he's out of prison. He immediately thinks, I need to get somewhere where somebody actually would be glad to see me and help me. And so he goes. Now we've seen several Herods, we've seen several Jameses, and now we've got more Marys to add to the list, right? 
But Luke, again, through the Holy Spirit, explains to us this is Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. We've also got another John that shows up. But this is the good one. He's John Mark. So we, we, we like him. The one who wrote uh, the gospel account of Mark and went on the missionary journeys with, uh, with Paul. So that's where they're headed. This was a, a group of people. It tells us at the end of the verse, many gathered together and were praying. Remember verse 5, many in the church were praying earnestly. This is a group. Was this all of them? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But a group was at Mary's house praying for Peter and praying earnestly. So that's where Peter decides to go. Verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Do you see the humor here? Peter finally wakes up, makes his way to a house full of friendly people who will help him. He gets there. He knocks on the gate. Rhoda comes to the gate, recognizing his voice, and goes back in, leaving Peter standing in the street. And goes back in, excited to tell everybody what's happened, to tell the people praying earnestly, possibly for days. She's so shocked, she leaves him there and runs back in. Verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Think of this. Group of church members is praying earnestly for Peter possibly for days, knowing that tomorrow brings the end of the days of unleavened bread and with it a trial, if you can call it that, and likely Peter's death. They're praying earnestly. Somebody knocks at the gate. Rhoda goes out. Rhoda comes right back in. Peter's here. <laughs> what do they do? They do what y'all just did. Yeah, right, Rhoda. You've lost your mind. Now, maybe they were nicer than that. Maybe they said, listen, honey, it has been a rough week for everybody. We lost James. We have had the stress of worrying about Peter and praying for Peter. We all wish he was there too, but that, that it, it's not Peter. She keeps insisting, yes, it is. So these people, remember, Luke records their praying earnestly, and they miss a miracle when it knocks on the door, the thing they've been praying for. Rhoda keeps insisting. They, keep, they say at one point, it's his angel, like, like some kind of guardian angel. Rhoda, maybe somebody's out there that has something to do with Peter. It ain't Peter. It's more likely his angel than it is Peter. But she keeps insisting. Now, we read about them praying earnestly, and, and again, we see the humor of Peter coming up to the gate, and the very thing they've been praying for, they miss it because while they're praying earnestly, their response shows us that their prayer certainly was imperfect and apparently was a little doubtful. Their first response wasn't, really? Well, let's go see. The first response is, you've lost your mind. You're crazy. He's not out there. He can't be out there. He's in prison with all those guards, and in the morning he's going to be dead just like James. They miss it. Immediately my mind went to, the story, it's in Mark chapter 9. There is a father who has a son 
who is afflicted with an unclean spirit, and he finds Jesus. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you are able, help us. And what does Jesus say? All things are possible for one who believes. And remember the father's response? Immediately he cried out, I believe. Help my unbelief. The same sentence, the same breath, standing in front of Christ himself. I believe. Help my unbelief. I know you can do it, but my natural tendencies tell me that ain't Peter. This is the same thing, the same situation. People are earnestly praying, and their doubtful, imperfect prayer is no match for King Herod. Now, is that because they're praying earnestly? Maybe they're praying really earnestly, so God's got to listen to that, right? Or maybe it's the, it's the members of the church who are praying, and God says, well, hey, those folks, they are good folks. I'm going to listen to them. Or maybe it's, 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 well, Peter is really innocent of this. This is a grave injustice, and I will not stand for him to be done this way. That has nothing to do with any of it. The point that their imperfect prayer is more powerful than Herod and the chains and the gates and the guards and every other thing that we've seen is because of the one whom they are praying to. That's why. Take it as Pharaoh, take it as Nebuchadnezzar, take it as King Herod right here. No match for God Almighty. It's not even close. It's not even a contest. It's not even requiring effort on the part of our Savior. The angel walks Peter out like you're walking to your car after this service. No problem whatsoever. How mighty is the Lord. So we've got these people. Rhoda saying, it's Peter. He's at the gate. I just heard him. I know it's his voice. That's Peter. Rhoda, you're crazy. It's not Peter. Maybe it's his angel, but it's not Peter. And they're back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> Peter's still knocking. Peter's probably out there thinking, can I get that angel to come back? I got out of this iron gate, no problem, and these people won't let me into the house. I'm stuck outside. Where's that angel? Peter keeps knocking. Finally, somebody opens the door. And I would say that the end of verse 16 is also an understatement. And we're amazed. <laughs> Do you think they were amazed that Peter is standing there? Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went on another way. So they are so amazed that he's got to say, be, be quiet. There may be people looking for me. Stop yelling my name. Just, be, just wait. I will tell you everything that's happened. Now this verse is kind of a transition, and, and it's one that you can kind of read through and and. Just keep on reading through the text. But there's a couple things, a couple, three things in here that I think are, are worth looking at. First thing, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Not a big shock, right? They've been praying earnestly. Peter shows up. Peter, how'd you get here? Well, let me tell you how I got here. I don't remember much of it because I was asleep for the better part of it. But this is what the angel did, and here I am. So not very shocking there. Then he says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Now, here's another James, right? This one is the one you may be thinking of, half-brother Jesus, the one who wrote the epistle of James. That's this guy. 
after this account, and, and the end of this verse tells us, then he, being Peter, departed and went to another place. So he leaves Jerusalem. He, is, he has been um, out of prison, no doubt to avoid future arrest, future persecution, getting his head cut off, that kind of thing. So he leaves. James is one who steps up and becomes a strong leader in the church here. Now we see Peter comes back, um, chapter 15, in the, the Council of Jerusalem, Peter's back. We see him there, and we certainly see him outside of, of Acts um, working and ministering in, in the New Testament. So Peter's not gone off the scene, but he's gone out of this passage. So that's what happens. The angel gets him out of prison, saves his life. He comes back, tells everybody, spread the news. Tell James and the brothers what has happened. All right, let's finish our text and we'll try to tie all this together. Verse 18, now when day came, here's another understatement. There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. So now we're seeing checks back. Sun comes up. Herod says, go get Peter. Um, Peter's not there. What do you mean Peter's not there? Um, I don't know what I mean, but he's not there. Well, I had 16 guards. Bring them in here. And it says, there's no little disturbance among them. They would have been the first to figure out Peter's not there. And the custom in this day was, if you were in charge of guarding a prisoner and the prisoner got away, the sentence that was going to be handed down to that prisoner falls to you, which is what happens. Verse 19, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. So there were 16 executions that happened that morning, but not the one Herod wanted, not the one the Jews, unbelieving Jews, wanted. Peter is gone. So what do we do with this? What do we learn from this? How do we apply this? How do we think rightly about this passage of Scripture? Well, the first thing that we have to see, it's obvious to us, is the advancement of God's kingdom comes at a significant cost. Oftentimes in the New Testament, it is the life of his saints. That's what we've seen here as James has gone and certainly Peter would have met the same end had the Lord not intervened. One of the commentaries that I referenced studying for this, they quote an Anglican theologian, his name's John Stott, and this is, this is the quote that they referenced. I wanted to read it. Indeed, throughout church history, the pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat, although with the assurance that even the powers of death and hell can never prevail against Christ's church since it is built securely on the rock. In other words, we can relate to this. Christians in every age have or will experience persecution should they be faithful to preach the gospel. And it should not surprise us because Jesus told them before he died, they hate me, they're going to hate you. Not they're going to hate you unless you package it and are really good at how you sell it. No, the message of the cross is a stumbling block. If you are faithful to preach the gospel, 
there will be persecution. There will be opposition. It is inevitable. And think back to what we've seen just in Acts and how that's true. Think of our world today and Christians in North Korea and China who meet in the middle of the night in a dark, dreary, dank basement so that nobody finds out who they are because they're going to die immediately if they're found out. The world is not worthy of such folks. As we go through, also, maybe a question has come to your mind. I think it's a reasonable question. As you read through this, as we think through this, as we try to wrestle with what is the text saying, the, the question may have popped into your head. Why did Jesus spare Peter and not spare James? Why did chapter 12 unfold like it has? All we get in chapter 12 is one verse about James. He was killed with a sword. The rest of the chapter is spent explaining in pretty good detail of how Herod is spared. But think back just in Acts of this question, where this question could arise. Chapter 2, we talked about it earlier. Peter preaches at Pentecost. What does it say that the response of those Jews who were listening to him had? They were cut to the heart. They repented and believed, and 3,000 got saved. Chapter 7, Stephen does the same thing, but uses more of the Jewish history to prove his point as he walks all the way through the Old Testament. And what happens to him? Everybody listening to him doesn't say they're cut to the heart. It says they handed their coat to a guy named Saul so that they could throw that rock to kill that heretic that they needed to do. And I can't be bound by this coat. Saul, will you hold it for me? And he's killed. Same message, same gospel. Then this chapter, James is killed. Peter is spared. Why? Peter a better preacher than Stephen? Peter a better apostle than James? Is Peter more worthy of protection because he's more important? Because the Lord needs him more? No, certainly not. But sometimes God's sovereignty is inscrutable. We can't fathom it. We can't understand why the things happen like they happen. Why does chapter 12 unfold like it does? Apply it to your own life. Many of us in here, maybe all of us in here, can think right now of a loved one we have or have had in our past, a friend, a family member, whatever. Just take anything, a cancer diagnosis. Maybe most of us in here have prayed earnestly for that loved one with a cancer diagnosis. Maybe you're doing that right now. Why does the Lord decide to heal some in this life and allow us many more years with that loved one? And others he decides to heal permanently when he calls them home, cutting our time with them short. I have an answer. It's not a good answer. I don't know. I don't know. We're not promised details. We're not promised reasons on how God works through the life's, lives and deaths of his people. But we can trust in his ways are perfect. We can trust that 
It's his business and it's for his glory. God doesn't promise us a detail for all the questions and situations that arise in our life. We, we will not understand many of, of those things. But he has made some promises. And we'll close with them. The Old Testament is full of promises of one who is to come. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3. One is coming who is perfect. Who will save you from your sin. Will redeem you. The New Testament begins with that message coming to pass. Where Jesus Christ steps out of heaven, steps into our suffering, tabernacles with his people, lives a life perfect, complete obedience, fulfilling the prophecy, fulfilling the law, enacting that perfect plan of redemption promised beginning back in Genesis 3. And we as sinners, both by birth and by choice, just as quick as we're old enough to make that choice, are right to be judged by him. He is right in his holiness and righteousness to judge us and pay us the wage that we've earned, which Paul would tell us in Romans is death. That's what we've earned. It's what we deserve. Paul would also tell us in Ephesians, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace... Have you been saved? He's promised us that to those who repent and believe, to those who call upon the name of the Lord, you can be saved. You can stand before a righteous, holy God, clothed in righteousness, not of your doing, not of your works, not of your abilities, but clothed in the righteousness that Christ alone has and offers as a free gift of salvation. Standing before him, the Lord would see Christ's righteousness in our place. That's a promise that he's made. Now, as we're finishing, maybe these things sound new to you. That's okay. Maybe you have questions. That is okay. There are pastors here. There are people here. I'm here after the service. I would be happy to sit down with you and answer your questions, to show you in Scripture what Christ has done. If you're a visitor and you came because somebody invited you, make them take you to lunch and ask them, right? Ask them. Get them to explain to you, what was that crazy guy talking about? Righteousness and death and I earned that. Fill in the blanks for me. Ask. I promise you there are people quite willing to explain it to you. As we close, I know I've said that three times, but I really mean it this time. Uh, there's a quote, and it's funny that you read from Lamentations this morning before our first hymn, and there's a, a, a passage in that, or a phrase in that passage that, that he read that um, ties to what, what we're closing with here, and, and this is a, a devotional book called New Morning Mercies. That phrase is right out of the, the text in Lamentations. Paul David Tripp, I know your pastor likes that devotional. Many of you may be familiar with it. Um, it's good. If you haven't heard of it or know of it, again, uh, ask and it shall be given, I'm sure. Um, but New Morning Mercies, Paul David Tripp, it's, it's the last two sentences from the reading on May 20th. Now, if you're doing New Morning Mercies, May 20th was Friday. So this was, you would have read this Friday morning if you're doing it based on the dates that are in there. This is the last two sentences. 
It's never you against the world because your life has been invaded by the grace and glory of Emmanuel. Say no to fear and live with the hope and courage that come only when you remember that the Lord is near. Opposition is unavoidable. Christ himself not only tells us that, he promises us that we will encounter that. But he also promises to those who will repent and believe and call on his name. Victory is already won. And a life as durable as all eternity is offered. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for our time, for your word. It is so good. Lord, for the gospel that we read in it, for just the fact that in your mercy you have explained these things to us. You have given us in your Old Testament the law that sets out what your righteous standard is. And that in your goodness and in your mercy, you have also pointed out we can't meet it. We are sinners and we need a Savior. Lord, you promised us that Savior throughout your Old Testament. He shows up at the beginning of the New Testament. We read about those in this passage today who were with him, who saw him, who were part of his ministry and who are the beginnings of carrying that message from Jerusalem on out. Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for the faithfulness of saints throughout the years who we can trace all the way to this morning where we still are able to freely proclaim your gospel. Lord, thank you. We ask now that as we close this service, if there are those here who have heard some things for the first time about the redeeming work of your son, the promise of salvation that's offered by your son, Lord, don't give them a minute's rest till they get those questions answered. And use this church, use anyone here as your hands and feet to do that. Lord, again, we thank you in advance for all you will do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.